is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went of them to, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, "My father." And he said, "Here I am, my son." He said, "Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. I asked Lauren to read what for some people is maybe one of the most troubling and challenging passages in all of scripture. Because Peter talks to believers about the glory that exists when we suffer well. And if I had to put today's sermon in a single sentence, this would be it. Believer, and if you're not a believer yet, I want to encourage you to trust in Christ, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But primarily, believer, be ready for both trials 
and judgment by trusting God's faithful care. Let me say that again. Believer, be ready for trials and judgment by trusting God's faithful care. Now, many of us, if you've been in church for a little while, have heard things like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I heard that in youth group. Pretty sure I, I even heard it in middle school in church. Uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And I think that's true. But very often, that wonderful plan for your life includes testing you in such deeply painful ways that you'll wonder if God even exists or if he loves you. And that's part of his plan. When I heard God has a wonderful plan for your life, I imagined being a successful guitar player in a band that was very much like Petra. I thought this will be it. And I never imagined some of the trials and hardships and testing that God would take me through not because he didn't love me, but precisely because he did love me. And so I asked Lauren to read this passage from Abraham's life because Abraham is already a believer. He's already received the incredible promises of God. He's already left his home in obedience to God promising to bless him not knowing where he will go or where he will live, in faith he has walked with the Lord for decades. And in faith he has seen God begin to keep his promises so that as an old man with a wife, scripture says, as good as dead, very old, God miraculously provides them with the child of promise. And you can imagine Abraham saying, God has a wonderful plan for my life. Who could imagine that people 100 years old and 90 would have a baby? It's not possible. And things look great. And the child of promise comes. And then God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, what could be more deeply agonizing to any parent? People wrestle with the fact that God even asked Abraham to do this, even if you know the end of the story. Is God some kind of monster that allows for human sacrifice? How could this be a good command ever? But the beginning of the chapter tells you exactly what's happening. So that after these things, God tested Abraham. And the book of James says to believers, count it all joy, my brothers, my, my sisters, when you fall into various trials and temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, Abraham had faith and his faith was being rewarded. Well, now his faith is being tested. And it's being tested in such a way that we wonder if God is even good. I don't know if anyone here would do what Abraham did in this chapter. In fact, if somebody said, Pastor, I think God wants me to kill my kid. I would say, 
let's sit down and read some scripture together. I don't think that's the case. Not in a million years would I say, all right, let's, let's make a plan. Let's go ahead and do it. Never. And yet that's what God asked Abraham to do. And this passage ought to speak to us deeply if you have a family because children are like the acceptable idol for many Christians. That's the one thing that you can say, my kids come first in my life. And no one will say, that's, that's wrong. Because it seems right. And yet in this passage, if God chooses Isaac, excuse me, if Abraham chooses Isaac over God, he fails the test. And so Abraham in faith begins to obey God in something so terrible that he loses the very thing that God promised to give him. Now, parents and grandparents, I want to say to you clearly, there is a lesson here for us that our relationship with God must come first. If you try to put your kids first, you will ruin your life and theirs because they will not know God. Abraham gets the order right and it says God tells him as he has obediently prepared to sacrifice his son, God stops that. It's true that we can never provide our own sacrifices. There's so many things in here that, that point to Christ. God stops that and he says this, now I know that you fear me seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, we talk about the fear of the Lord, and a lot of people try to say that it's just a reverential awe. It's so much more than that. This is a deep kind of fear of God where Abraham recognizes that even in something terrible, he must obey even when he does not understand. God doesn't give him the explanation. He doesn't tell him what's going to happen. He wants to know, do you love me or do you love your son? Do you trust me that I will keep my promises even when it looks like the only way for me to keep your promises is vanishing? And in this trial and in this test, in this suffering, Abraham proves that his fear of God is more than just lip service. It's more than just religion. It motivates his life of obedience. And God himself provides a substitute for Isaac. I mention this because Peter says, Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, there will come a time when your faith is tested and tried, not because God doesn't love you, but because he does love you. And in that trial and in that testing, there is glory. Now, Abraham is the father of faith. We love to criticize Abraham for so many of his failings. And while the Bible never tries to, to wallpaper over the imperfections and serious sins and flaws and faults of some of these heroes, it does hold Abraham up as an example because he gets this right on what a deep level seems like the worst thing God could ever ask you to possibly do. Abraham trusts that God is good. In fact, in the New Testament, 
It says that Abraham reasoned to himself that he believed God could raise the dead even if he had to go through with it. He trusted that God would keep his promise, not knowing how God would keep his promise. And God, because he is a God full of mercy, full of love, saves Isaac's life. And there are so many things in this passage that I think we need to, to get in order to understand what's happening in 1 Peter. Partly the horror of it ought to help us recognize how much we are separated from God. The fact that Isaac is going to be sacrificed is a clear picture of what happens apart from God's intervention and apart from God's mercy. We will be destroyed unless God does something to save us. And the fact that God steps in and saves Isaac's life is a picture of what God does on the cross of Jesus Christ. So you imagine Abraham as this loving father willing to sacrifice his son for obedience to God, not even fully understanding what that's going to do. And God the Father says, there's no need for you to do that, Abraham. And God the Father sacrifices his only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And he does not stay his hand. And Christ dies in my place and in your place as an offering and a sacrifice for our sins so that he might bring us to God. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, what happens with Abraham and Isaac gives a picture of how God steps in and provides the sacrifice necessary so that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. If you are a believer in Jesus today, you inherit the blessings of Abraham through Christ Jesus because of the sacrifice God the Father made for you on the cross when Jesus died and took your place. And, and I've spoken so much to believers. I have to say this. If you are not a believer this morning, this is the point where you recognize you deserve what Isaac almost got. You deserve what Christ got. You are separated from God because of your sin. You are in danger of destruction and wrath and eternal separation from God. And yet God the Father in his love and in his mercy has made a way of escape. Christ has borne your sins on the cross. He has taken your place. And if you trust in him, you will find forgiveness of sins. You will be made right with God. And Peter is writing primarily to people who have already done that. He's writing to Christians who have trusted in Christ and now they are suffering and they're confused because they've believed in Jesus already and in spite of the fact that King Jesus is the victor, in spite of the fact that he is the rock, he is the cornerstone, and Peter has talked about how those who reject him will one day be crushed by this cornerstone, right now that's not happening. Right now, the ones who have believed in Jesus are suffering. And so I've asked you to turn to the book of 1 Peter keeping this image of Abraham in mind, the father of faith, the one who suffers because he follows God. Can you imagine for a second, if Abraham hadn't said yes to God when God called him to leave his home, he probably would have lived an average life. I mean, we don't know. Probably would have gotten married. Who knows if he would have had kids or not. Probably would have done okay in business. We would have never have heard of him. 
And if Abraham had followed the call of God and then said no and said, this is the son of promise, I, I, I must be confused. You can't possibly be asking me to do what I think you're asking me to do. I, I'm just going to do what I think is right. Isaac is the son of promise. We're going to be blessed. I'm going to ignore what you told me. What would have happened? How would God have kept his promises if Abraham had not been faithful? There are so many places where it seems that God says, if Abraham had disobeyed, he would have had to find another way. But Abraham obeyed the Lord and received the blessings because of what God has done. And Christian, I want to say to you, Remain faithful in your obedience. Be ready for trials and judgment by trusting in God's faithful care. Abraham was ready for this trial because he knew he could trust God's faithful care even when what God was calling him to seemed terrible and unthinkable. And we can have that same hope. We can have that same preparation. So this morning, I want you, number one, to be ready to suffer well. Look with me at the book of 1 Peter. I'm in chapter 4. I want to encourage you, if, if you don't have a paper Bible, grab your phone. You can just Google 1 Peter 4. You will find it. And I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 16 right now. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And we're going to pause right there. We're going to see a little bit more in this passage. But I want to meditate for a moment on four different types of suffering. Peter has mentioned two very clearly. And a little bit later in our text, Verse 19, he says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And in verse 19, I think he leaves it open-ended. If you are in pain, if you are suffering in any way, you are to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while you continue to serve him, while you continue to do good. And so I want to talk briefly about four different types of suffering that I think fit into this text that when it happens to us, and it will in one way or another, we are told, do not be surprised. Instead, rejoice and let your joy serve as a witness to Jesus Christ. To begin with, Peter mentions particularly a kind of persecution that comes because you are a faithful believer. Now, Abraham isn't persecuted by somebody outside. His suffering comes as a test of his faith from God Almighty. But Peter would say, really, that's true of every type of suffering that you as a child of God endure. You can see that because verse 19 says, we suffer according to God's will. In other words, it's not an accident 
It's not because God isn't capable of making something happen so that you escape all suffering altogether. It's because he loves you. And in his good plan for your life, he has included the terrible things that have tested your faith. And so the first one is a sort of test or trial or suffering because you are following Jesus. And in a way, I think Abraham fits into that category And we've all heard stories, I'll never forget when I read about the 11 people that were murdered in Egypt for being faithful Christians, because it was one of the first cases where an execution was viewed globally on YouTube. They marched these men to a beach, had little bags on their heads, they all knelt down, none of them would recant their faith in Christ, and they cut their throats. That's clear persecution for being a Christian. That's the type of persecution that believers in Peter's day might face. But they also faced different types of persecution. They could lose their property. They could be abused. They could be stolen from. Any number of things might happen. They they were not people who had political power. They had very little legal protection. And so their faithfulness to Christ sometimes damaged their reputation. That's a type of persecution that, that we don't feel to that extent. You know, you, you might get picked on at school if you don't do some of the same things. Uh, like, it didn't take very long for me to get noticed whether I worked someplace because I, I don't swear. And that, that stands out eventually. People try to start doing things to see if they can get you to swear. It, it's just like, and, and that's a small thing, but it's just like, you're different. Like, what's wrong with you? That's, that's strange. Especially, I mean, as a younger Christian, you use like all the Mary Poppins swear words and those just sound silly. So... There's the possibility of mockery. Sometimes it's worse. I I was telling some of the guys that I was studying with earlier this week, I had had an experience when I worked at Wolverine down on Cogshell, right out of college. I I worked there for one year, and I'd been there maybe a month, maybe two months, and I was working a CNC machine, and I had a number of fixtures that I had to tighten before I ran the program, and there was a mill that would come along and, and take off. A, it's kind of like a finishing edge on the back of this stainless steel part that was about, I don't know, maybe a foot long, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. And I have no idea how. I'm normally a very careful worker. I didn't make a lot of mistakes when I worked there. But somehow, I did not tighten every fixture. And when the mill came down on the CNC machine, if you don't know what a mill, it's, it's uh, in this type of CNC machine, it, it had like this little edged uh, sharp piece made out of carbide. I guess you could call it a carbide bit. And it span really fast and it would come along and it would actually chip away stainless steel. And I had not tightened one of the fixtures that held the piece down. And I heard a horrible, horrible noise, just a big bang and knew instantly something was wrong with my machine. So I hit the giant red emergency stop button. I'm freaking out. The machine costs like at least a quarter of a million dollars. And I know I'm not worth that as an employee. So I'm trying to think what is happening? One of the other employees comes running over. What's going on, man? I said, I have no idea. At this point, I didn't even realize that I hadn't tightened one of the fixtures down. I thought I did everything. The machine just didn't work. So we open up the machine, and one of the fixtures is clearly not in place, and it's clearly because I didn't tighten it down. And he looks at me, and he goes, don't say a word. I'll fix this. All right, sounds good. So he does some CNC wizardry, 
modifies the fixtures a little bit, says we're going to try to run another part. All right, sounds good. So we try to run another part, and what happens is a disaster. It does not meet specifications. It is not even close. There is no way I can continue to make parts with the machine in its current state of dysfunction. Someone has to come in and fix it. And so he looks at me and says, okay, here's the deal. I was never here. (laughs) And so I went and told my boss, what happened, and now I had a couple of options. He basically wanted me to say, go to your boss, tell him the machine broke, and you don't know why. I thought, well, I could do that. It's kind of dishonest. The truth of the matter is, if I do that, then the guy who did the setup is gonna get in trouble because it looks like he didn't do his job right when he did do his job right, and I didn't. So he encouraged me to lie about what happened, and I was very concerned because The guy that tried to fix it for me, his job was on the line a little bit. He stuck his neck out to try to help me, and it became pretty obvious pretty quick that I was either going to have to lie or get him in trouble. And I hated that. In one sense, I didn't want to lose my job, but I, I hated to lose two jobs because this guy tried to step in and help me. So what do you do? What do you do? Is there a way out? And what I did, and I said, you know, I think it was the right thing, but it was costly, is I came totally clean. I told the entire truth. I said, hey, Mike tried to fix it. It did not work. And I'm the one that's at fault here. And in the way that Mike had talked to some people and done some things, it became very evident that he had tried to cover this up. And management was not pleased with him. The owner of the company uh, was a guy that had grown up there. He had inherited the company from, from his parents, and uh, he was missing this index finger from not a CNC mill, but an actual mill. Uh, had had an accident when he was a teenager, and he waved his stub at me, and he said, I know what it means to make mistakes. I'm like, that's, that's... <laughs> he said, you don't need to be afraid to admit that you made a mistake. I appreciate you being totally honest. And then they got super mad at the guy that tried to help me because he wasn't being honest with them. And it wasn't the first time. And and as we talked about this as different guys, the reality is management wasn't always great to the people in the shop. There were lots of reasons why people who had been there for decades wouldn't be completely honest with the management. So I'm not saying like they're both great, innocent people and, and people that lie are terrible. It was a pretty rough situation. So what happened after I told the truth, I've been there maybe two months, nobody really wanted to trust me or help me with anything. Because they know if something happens, I'm going to come clean. Even if they're trying to help me, even if they're trying to protect me to keep me from losing my job, I'm the guy that'll tell the truth. And that did not make me wildly popular with my fellow employees. Now, I worked there long enough. I had an okay reputation by the time I left to go back to school. So it doesn't have a terrible ending. But I wasn't terribly close with a lot of people for a really long time because I did what I think was the right thing, the Christian thing to do, to tell the truth. And it hurt relationships around me because I did that. Now, that is a tiny, tiny, tiny way of being persecuted for being a faithful follower of Christ. Okay, that's not, that's not being marched to a beach and being executed. 
But it is possible. If you're a school teacher, you might be put in a very awkward position if somebody asks you what you think about what the Bible says about any number of issues. You may be a person of business, and you may be encouraged to cheat on taxes or to lie or to import your, you know, report your income differently. There are all kinds of temptations, and sometimes telling you the truth and doing the right thing is costly, and it hurts, and you wonder, God, this is unfair. I'm doing the right thing, and it's costing me. Why? And Peter says, well, here what's happening. Don't be surprised. Something strange is not happening to you. This is normal. Instead, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice. Be glad. It means that you are becoming like Christ. Take it as encouragement that you have begun this transformation to be like Jesus. Peter says, if you share in Christ's sufferings in this way, One day, when his glory is revealed, you will share in that too. You might not share in glory right now. If you you ask the guys that still work at the shop, there are a couple that that were there when I was there. He said, hey, what do you think of that Phil guy? They would say, who? They they have no idea. Like, I did not make a splash. There was no glory. Made some decisions that were unpopular, and then I quit to go back to school. Nobody remembers. But one day, when I stand before Christ... I will share in the glory of Christ insofar as I have been faithful. And Peter is saying, don't be ashamed of those moments. It's tempting to feel like you did the wrong thing because people are mad at you. Don't be ashamed when you suffer. Instead, glorify God and trust in future glory. So that's number one the type of persecution that comes because you're trying to be a faithful Christian. We'll go through the others a little bit quicker. Uh, But number two, there's the type of suffering that I call purification or purifying suffering. That's the suffering that James talks about. It's knowing that the testing of your faith brings about endurance. That's the type of suffering that Abraham endured. Is he going to believe God and obey or not? Is he going to truly fear God or not? And this type of purifying suffering, it's not because you did something immoral. It's because God is calling you to holiness, and it might even feel like you're being torn in two. If you have a sin that is debilitating, an addiction that you can't shake, it's painful to pursue holiness. It feels like God is asking you to sacrifice a baby. And you might feel like, God, this isn't fair. God, why are you calling me to this? And I think in some sense, those who are called to singleness, who do not get married, they pay this price as they pursue holiness. You know, I mentioned my buddy before, uh, Christopher Yuan. He's a guy that, that to this day would say, hey, I'm attracted to other men, but, but I love Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I'm pursuing holiness. And that feels like he's being torn in two because he's saying no to something that's a very deep longing in his heart as he says yes to Christ and obediently walks with Christ. Those of you, you don't even have to experience that kind of attraction. There are those of you who are married and are not satisfied in your married life and you may be tempted to view pornography or you may be tempted to satisfy your desires in ways other than your wife. 
and it feels like you have a right to do what feels natural, and God would say to you, no, you don't. You've been called to holiness. And if you're single, you have no outlet for those desires that seem so natural and normal. And a purifying type of suffering is when you say no to your natural desires and instead do what God has commanded you to do and be obedient to your Father in heaven. Trusting that whatever suffering you presently endure as you say no to the desires that seem so natural in your heart, you will be rewarded for your obedience and you will find a richer and a deeper blessing because you have obeyed. It's what I call the purifying type of suffering. You are learning to trust your father when he tells you something that you don't like. Not because you've sinned, but instead because you are being made more like Jesus Christ. The third type of suffering, and there's probably some overlap here. I just wrote down life. Just life. You might think of Job. Okay, Job doesn't do anything wrong. And in fact, as you read through the book of Job, it doesn't exactly seem like Job's faith is being strengthened and enriched. Now, like it is. By the end of the book, he understands God better and in a deeper way. But it's not clear that Job is growing through the book. In fact, if you read through it, I'm about halfway through it right now. Job, if you're not familiar with the story, Job is a righteous man. It calls him that at the beginning of the book. He hasn't done anything wrong. He is a, a worshiper of God. He is faithful in making sacrifices and seeking God. He's an Old Testament saint before Jesus comes. And Job, this righteous man, loses everything. Because Satan says, hey, I bet you he won't be righteous if you take away all the stuff that you've blessed him with. So he loses his house, all of his possessions. This is the ancient Near East, so he's losing camels and he's losing sheep. He loses all of that. All of his children die, and then he's afflicted with sores all over his body. So he's in terrible physical pain. His wife looks at him and says, Job, curse God and die. There is no point in living. And Job didn't sin. And Job has no sense that God's just trying to grow me through this. I'm just going through a tough season right now. I'll come out on the other side stronger. Several times throughout the book, Job says things like, it would have been better for me if I were stillborn. He doesn't want to live. And he has no sense of what God is doing in his life. And I think of some of the deep trials that some of you have walked through, and there's no sense that I'm going to be a more mature Christian after this. It's the suffering that comes with regular life. And think about the cries of Job and how agonized they are. He is seeking God's presence actively, and he says it's as if God doesn't exist, that God is deaf and not hearing his cries. He longs for an audience with God, and he feels like he's being denied that audience. In fact, there's a verse that often gets taken out of context. Maybe you've heard it in the book of Job. He says, when I am tried, I will come forth as gold. And we think, ah, oh, this, is, this is the great hope. That's not what Job was talking about. He was saying, if I could have a trial before the Almighty, I would be proven innocent, and I can't get the trial. He's actually really mad because he doesn't understand what's happening in his life. And as he prays and offers sacrifices, it's as if God is not there. And so his statement when I am tried, I will come forth as gold, is actually a statement of frustration because he can't get the trial. He's crying out in pain 
that God seems to be completely absent from his lived experience and he can't get justice. You know, C.S. Lewis in his, in his great book, The Screwtape Letters, describes that this is actually an experience almost every Christian goes through. You come to Christ and you're excited because you feel the love of God in a fresh way. Maybe you feel a burden of guilt and sin lifted off of you and you feel a peace like you've never had before and you assume that that will last forever. And then you lose a job or even worse, a child or you get a diagnosis of cancer or something terrible happens and all of a sudden the God that you thought you believed in doesn't seem to be helping you anymore. Those are the trials of life. Yes, you can look at James and and you can say, God's at work in your heart. Thank God for the book of Job because the book of Job is a great warning to us to be very careful in how we encourage suffering people. You don't come along someone in grief and in anguish and say, God's working in you. It's gonna be okay. Because your attempt at encouragement could actually plunge them into deeper depression. Now, there is a point where you say, you know what, God still loves you, but you need to be so careful and so wise in how you encourage a depressed, discouraged person who believes that God is totally absent. Because if anything, you look at Job's friends and they say the things that we say. If you confess your sin, God will bless you. Well, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't mean your life is gonna get better and it doesn't mean your life is gonna get easier right now. If anything, what Peter is telling you is you faithfully follow Christ, you will face many trials and temptations. And that's exactly what Jesus said. In this world, you will have trouble, but do not fear, I have overcome the world. Now that's awesome encouragement, but as long as we're in this world, we will have those trials and troubles and testing. And so there's that type of suffering that comes just just because we live in a broken and a fallen world. And yes, God does have a purpose in it, but you can't tell what it is and you don't know what it is. And when people try to guess at it and tell you what's happening in your life, it drives you mad and may push you further from God. And so I wanna encourage you, when you go through these types of suffering, to be patient, to recognize that God is good, but to give yourself time. Don't think that it's strange that you're going through this. Almost every believer does. Then the last type of suffering I wanna mention briefly this morning is punishment for sin. So this is the one that Peter does clearly talk about in the text. He mentions persecution and punishment for sin. He says, make sure that when you are suffering, Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, so what type of suffering would those people experience? Well, if you're caught, some of those in in the ancient world would have gotten the death penalty. If you you murder, you are probably going to die. If you are a thief, at the very least, you will have to make heavy restitution, including a percentage beyond what you took. They are not afraid of maiming people in the ancient world. And if you remember the, the, my version of Aladdin, when I was a kid, the opening song had this little line about how they would cut off your hand if you stole bread. And then they changed it because apparently that was too violent for kids. 
But when I was a little kid, even Disney was like, yeah, this is a thing. You steal something, you might get your hand chopped off. That's the type of suffering. And that's suffering, okay? Like it hurts to have your hand chopped off. It stinks to go through life with one hand. That's the type of suffering. But Peter's saying, uh, don't confuse that with suffering as Christians. Okay, so there's a type of suffering where you go into a shop wearing all these goofy Christian t-shirts and people make fun of you. Not because you're a Christian, but because your t-shirts are goofy. There's a difference, okay? Like, there's no mandate that you have a corny sense of humor as a believer. There's not. Now, I, there's nothing wrong with a corny sense of humor. Lots of guys, I, I love dad jokes. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, don't confuse being teased and made fun of and picked on because of something that's not a command of Jesus with Christian persecution. And if you do things that are genuinely wrong and immoral... Don't be complaining. There's a great Christian that, that is unfortunately and tragically, it's come out just in the past couple of months that he lived a double life. And, and it's heartbreaking because he ministered to so many people with his public speaking, but privately, he sexually abused probably dozens of women. We don't even know how many. And the name of Jesus is tarnished because of his godless behavior. He lived a public life as a Christian and lived a private life as an ungodly, sensual pursuer of pleasure. And people are saying really bad things about him. And it's not because he was a Christian. It's because he genuinely did something evil. And they're angry. And we should be angry at that type of hypocrisy. So Peter says, in your life, when you experience suffering, make sure that your suffering is not because of your own sin. He mentions two really big ones, and we're like, okay, haven't killed anybody, and I'm not a thief, so I'm probably good. And then he mentions, as a meddler, well, shoot, the whole church is guilty. Everybody is guilty. At some point, you have stuck your nose in a place where it did not belong. And you might suffer for it. And Peter says, don't act like you're super spiritual when you do something wrong and experience bad consequences. And by the way, Jesus says if you have anger in your heart, you are effectively murdering someone, even if you don't literally stab them in the back. If you have lust in your heart, you are effectively committing adultery spiritually, even if you don't actually sleep with someone. And so even the things that were like, okay, I'm good there, probably not. And if you suffer because you are making a space for sin in your life, Peter would say, get the sin out of your life. Let this suffering cause you to turn inward, examine your heart, confess and forsake your sin. But if you suffer as a believer, and he says you will, be encouraged. So saints, my first point, which I promise is my longest point, be ready to suffer well. You will experience at least some, maybe all of those types of suffering. Remember, the God who sent his son to die in your place, who raised him from the dead. He will give you life. He will give you a future. He will forgive your sins. You have a future hope and use that to arm yourself so that you can patiently endure trials and testing. But number two, be ready not just for suffering, not just to suffer well, but be ready because God's judgment is now. And this is crazy. There are so many popular preachers and speakers that will never talk about this. And we need to talk about it. Verse 17 says this. For 
It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now look, I grew up in the 90s with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and all kinds of people talking about how bad America was. And and they weren't wrong. I mean, they were maximizing, you know, this is how many babies are being slaughtered today, and it still is happening. And they were talking about how sexually permissive we were becoming as a culture, and it's gotten worse. It's not that they were wrong, but the problem is the way they talked about it, it was like, we are the moral majority. We are godly. We've got our act together. We're good. And you people need to get it together, or you're going to wreck it for the rest of us. And that's not the posture of a believer, The posture of a believer is, I'm a sinner and God's had grace on me. I'm praying that he has grace on you. The posture of a believer, yes, sometimes you're going to condemn public sin. You you have to if you're going to be a faithful witness for Christ, but you don't do it in a way that you're angry that someone else is ruining your country for you. You do it because you fear the judgment of God. And here's the crazy thing. Peter says that God's judgment begins in the church. It doesn't begin with the godless culture around us. Jesus cares very much that the church is his faithful witness and his faithful bride. And if we don't faithfully represent Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world, Jesus will not permanently allow his reputation to be tarnished by an unfaithful people. He will close your church. The culture won't do it. And so it's my prayer that in my heart and in your heart, we would have an attitude that says, dear God, Please, in your infinite wisdom and in your will for my life, keep me faithful. When I am tested and tried, when your judgment has begun, and Peter is writing this in the first century, and it has already begun. You can see how, if you look at through the first couple chapters of Revelation, Jesus judges the churches that are only a generation old. Some of them are doing well, but most of them are not. And Jesus tells these churches, like Ephesus, that they need to repent because they've lost sight of their mission. And saints, if that's true of a church that was founded by Paul after 50 years, it's true of a church that was founded in Holly 180 years ago. We need to focus on the mission that God gave us. We need to follow the instructions that God gave us. And we need to tremble at the fact that God is actively purifying his church. And so let us search our hearts and see if we're being faithful believers and if we're being faithful as a church to carry out the mission that he's given us. Recognize that some of the events that are happening may very well directly relate to the way the church has handled its witness in America. And so if the church becomes more and more persecuted, perhaps it's because the church has not faithfully represented Jesus Christ. And I saw, I I was following a a guy that he's a writer and he pays attention to a couple of different pastors that I like to listen to. And he he mentioned the influence of a group of Christians that I really, really like. Uh, I I agree with them doctrinally. I agree with the things they say about culture. And and he mentioned one pastor in particular had like 600,000 followers on Twitter. Like, shoot, that's a lot. So then I went to Twitter and I found out his information was actually kind of old. He actually has one million followers on Twitter. And I thought, shoot, 
that is pretty sweet. Like, he's, he's a great pastor, and he's got that kind of influence just to send out a tweet, and a million people see it just instantly. And then I thought about a pastor of a church in Texas that's crazy popular, and I could mention his name, and I, maybe I should, I don't know. He's the type of pastor that will never talk about God's judgment. He will never tell you anything that is unpopular. In fact, he, he's been on TV, interviewed by Larry King a couple of years ago, and he will not say whether he believes people who are not believers in Jesus will go to heaven. He, he'll just say, I don't know, I don't know. I, I don't know those things. I, I'm not an academic, I don't know. He will not stand on the word of God. And he has 10 million followers on Twitter. And that is pretty indicative of the church across America. We love the people with shiny hair and white teeth that smile all the time and never say anything bad. But the people that are faithful to the word of God that say the judgment of God has begun on the church. And if the people of God are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Saints, the people of God being scarcely saved is not a popular American message in the church. It's not a message that has been preached faithfully in every church across America. We've preached a message that says, if you do these things right, God will bless you and you'll be happy. Follow his word about family and you'll have a happy marriage. You won't get divorced. Your children will be believers. We can have a big happy family that's lots of fun and then we, go, we die and we go to heaven and it's even better. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says, in this world, you will have trouble, but do not fear, for I have overcome the world. And, and rather than saying that, that God will preserve his church and bless them and keep them safe through every trial, Peter says, the righteous is scarcely saved. That is not what we have heard for the past 50 or 100 years in the American context. But that's what the Bible says. And I don't know what 2021 holds. 2020 was pretty crazy. Nobody saw it coming. And, and you can read some of the people that I read are, are maybe a little bit paranoid and, and they talk about all kinds of things, like legislation that if this is introduced, this will, this will destroy our Christian colleges and churches will begin to, you know what? Maybe all of those things will happen and, and maybe we will see institutions fail again and again and again. But you know what? Peter says, don't lose your hope. Don't despair. Instead, Rejoice insofar as you share of Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Our hope is not that we win the culture war. Our hope is that King Jesus comes back and his glory is beyond anything we can imagine. So saints, be encouraged. Be ready for the judgment of God that has already begun in the church. And if you see people falling away and you see people turning away, don't be discouraged because Jesus told us it would happen. Instead, allow the Lord to purify your heart and be faithful. Know that as you trust Christ, you will be saved. Now, I've said a couple words to non-believers. Peter would say to you, the ungodly and the sinner, what will become of them? They will be eternally separated from God. They will be in everlasting torment for all of eternity. They will be in conscious rebellion, shaking their fists at God, angry at him, and they will never find rest. 
But today is the day of salvation. If you are hearing this message, you have an opportunity to repent. You have an opportunity to say, God, I am guilty. Please, by your mercy and your grace, cleanse me of my sin. I believe the blood of Jesus has covered my sin. And walk in obedience. Be baptized and be saved. Join the group of the church that will scarcely be saved. Allow the suffering in your life to be used of God and recognize that there is hope in Christ. In fact, don't, don't miss the glory in this suffering. I, I believe that the greater the danger, the deeper the pain, the brighter the glory is. And I began this message talking about Abraham. And it's a story that is so crazy, it actually troubles a lot of people who are believers that, that it shouldn't trouble them. Here's what I think is happening. Because our values are so backwards in American Christianity, when we read Abraham, we think God is an unfair, cruel God. He never should have asked Abraham to do that. Because that's the American God that we've kind of created. It's a God that doesn't ask much. So when we see the glory of Abraham's obedience, we think he's some kind of sick monster. And in reality, Abraham's obedience reveals the glory of God. How? Because the glory of God is shown when he stops it and he provides a ram. If Abraham hadn't obeyed, we would never know who God is, that he is a God that provides the sacrifice so that we can know him. And the depth of Abraham's agony causes the glory of God to shine more brilliantly, and it will do that in your life as well. And that's what Peter says in the last verse this morning, verse 19. So, so number one, I've said, be ready to suffer well. Number two, I've said, be ready, God's judgment is now. Number three, and finally, be ready and trust God with your life. Verse 19, Peter says, therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There are so many good things in that verse. God is not unfaithful when he allows you to suffer. You are not outside of his will when he allows you to suffer. God is faithful and has his will planned for your life and it is good and it includes suffering that can draw you nearer to the heart of God and allow the glory of God to shine out from your life like a star. So saints, be encouraged that you can trust God with your life. And if you don't have that kind of faith, begin today. The glory of God is seen not just in the way God rescues Isaac and provides a lamb. It's seen so clearly in the cross of Christ where Jesus stands in the place of sinners. And if you don't know for sure that you have the salvation he's offering you, I would urge you, look in your mind's eye at the cross of Jesus and understand that he was crucified for you, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if God has done that for you, he will never fail you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we have heard from your word. Only you can change our hearts. I pray that we would believe it and rest in it. Lord, as you called Abraham to obedience, not just thinking right thoughts, but living life 
that is obedient, you call us to obedience. And I pray that we would live lives of obedience, that we would forsake sin and pursue holiness. Father, it's only in your mercy and your grace that we can do this. And we ask that you would pour it out on us richly, knowing that Jesus promised you would. And we claim this promise in his name. Amen.